How do we tell a world, how do we tell our neighbors the truth about Jesus Christ and the gift of salvation when the world and even our neighbors no longer share the common Christian assumptions? How do you tell them about Jesus when they no longer accept the possibility of a creator God? Or how do you correct Christians who have inaccurate views of the faith, of Jesus, of the church, when they only hear you through the lenses of their prejudice or ignorance? And when does our own pride get in the way when we are trying to help others break from the sin of pride? Well, this is some of the things we'll talk about today on Deep in Scripture. Well, welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grody, your host, and I'm joined, in fact, here in the studio with Dr. Kenneth Howell. Ken, it's good to have you here. Uh, it's a great privilege to have you here as opposed to trying to do it over the telephone, as we've mm -hmm. often done. Maybe we can do it this way more often. But thank you for joining us on this program. Again, we'd like to invite you to be a part of the Internet version of the program. You can go to deepinscripture.com. You can join our email list. You can send us an email at dis at chnetwork.org. Uh, and be sure to subscribe to the Coming Home Network and Facebook, CH Network, our Facebook page. Or you can be involved with the whole Twitter world at CH Network. Uh, things have changed, haven't they, Ken? They uh, certainly have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but Scripture is still the same. <laughs> yeah, Scripture hasn't changed. Back when you and I began in ministry years ago, email and Internet weren't even part of things. No, that's uh, right. And, uh, it's, now it's amazing what, what the apostles did without it, right? <laughs> but uh, I mentioned in the opening some of these conundrum questions today uh, about how do you how do you communicate the gospel, um, especially to a world that uh, either has no concept of God as we know God or has uh, inaccurate views, presumptions, prejudices, and, um, and as I mentioned in the end, in what ways, when we're trying to correct other people, are we blind to the guilt within ourselves? Mm -hmm. um, the reason I introduced the program like this is because what Ken and I would like to do is to start today along period of discussing the book of Romans and you know how do you introduce this book that's what we'll do today on the program but trying to understand what was the task of Paul to do that very thing and uh, Ken in a moment we'll get to that because we have an email uh, we really would like you to list, if you're listening to us, let us know if you're listening. It's kind of hard to, to know. We, we hope the program's an encouragement to you to open Scripture and uh, meditate on the Word of God. Uh, but we'd love to have your emails. And we have an email that's a reflection on last week. And it's from Steve, and he writes, Ken and Mark, in your study last week, you discussed Galatians 3.3, which said, Having begun with the Spirit... Are you now ending with the flesh? And then Steve writes, I've been a Christian all my life. How do I know that I began in the Spirit? Or whether I have always been in the flesh? Steve. Now, Ken, 
I, I don't know the background to Steve, mm-hmm. but here's what I'm thinking is behind this, that when you read Scripture, the book of Acts, as well as the first letter of John, you read some of Paul's letters, they speak about the experience of the Spirit almost as if it's a subjective, no, excuse me, an objective mm-hmm. proof of a changed life. And in Acts, in fact, when St. Peter convinced the, the gathered leaders about the, the proof that God was opening up to non-Jews through Cornelius and others, that the proof was that they had received the Spirit. Mm-hmm. And therefore, if God is giving them the Spirit, then why, how could we withhold baptism and the, the fullness of the faith? Which enters us into the discussions today, issue of Romans, Jews and mm. Greeks alike are re, uh, recipients of the grace of God. But in the email, with all that background, the guy's wondering, well, what about me? How do I know? Mm. I've been a Christian all my life. How do I know that I've received the Spirit, that I began in the Spirit, or whether I've just always been in the flesh? Well, it's a, it's an excellent question. It's a question that is very natural for a good and holy person to ask because we we know that it, we're capable of self-deception. We've seen other people that we think are deceiving themselves, and we want, we want to know whether we, we too, are, are doing the same. Um, when Paul says that having begun in the Spirit, are you now ending with the flesh? We have to remember that the contrast he's making here is between the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing a person to Christ and to the church and to salvation and then trying to do it on one's own effort. So I think implicitly there, there's there's an answer to what Steve has to say. And namely, can I look back in my life and at any point in my life say, you know, this is where the Spirit was working. And the answer to that is clear if we understand that baptism involves an imparting of the Holy Spirit. So if I have been baptized, um, I certainly have been, I have received the Holy Spirit. I've, I have, I'm under the influence of the Spirit. Unless, of course, I've completely departed from that. And maybe that's what Paul means when he says, are you now going to be complete by the flesh? In other words, have I turned to my own efforts? Have I turned maybe to my own sin and abandoned the spirit that I was given? So then the question becomes, well, how do I look at my my life? Now, a lot of people might think that it's a person who's struggling with some very serious sins that's the person that's abandoned the spirit and a person that's in the flesh. But actually what Paul means here is not a struggling Christian. What he means is a, is a prideful, self-sufficient Christian, a person who thinks they can do it on their own. Remember, the Lord castigated the Pharisees for their prideful selves of saying, well, you know, we, we have Moses. We know what the right thing is, and we know that you're wrong. But what did he say to the thief on the cross, the man who had lived an immoral life? When he pleaded with him and said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, 
What did he say? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. So how do I know? Well, do I have a spirit of contrition, a a humble spirit, at least that seeks to be humble, Uh, a spirit that is asking God for forgiveness? That's the work of the spirit, not the work of the flesh. Yeah, if the context was that before their particular understanding of being right with God was a list of things that if I do these things, I'm right with God. That's the idea of the flesh. That is right. There's a list of things, and if I do these, it's like like a son that wants his dad to reward him with the car for Saturday night if he does these five chores. Dad, here's a list. I did the five, now give me the keys. Okay, that was their mentality right with God. Well, in the spirit, it was recognizing that it's a gift of grace and that we've been changed and the gift of faith. And we respond to that without demanding anything of God. You know, and the ability to do that is objective evidence of the Holy Spirit changing our lives. Yeah, that's right. It's more than just mere subjective. It's objective. It is. Because we've, we've really changed. Now, can we return to the flesh? You know, that's what they were doing because mm-hmm. they, were, they were second guessing because these people were coming in with other opinions, questioning mm-hmm. whether you got the Spirit yeah, or not. Exactly. And so you've got to be circumcised. And the question was, well, wait a second. If you, if you go out and do this work of the flesh, you're re-crucifying Jesus. Yeah. You're starting over. And it reminds me, Ken, I'm going to throw another verse out of you. This is an easy one for you to handle. This is an easy one from your Calvinist background. Hebrews 6, chapter, verse 4 and following. <laughs> when, when the writer of Hebrews says, um, uh, you know, let us, he begins in verse 6, 1, Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance with dead works of faith towards God. Goes on a little bit of ablution, so you know he's talking about sacramental life. But then in verse 4, For it is impossible... To restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, in other words, they began in the Spirit, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. In other words, they were baptized and brought in the community Mm -hmm. and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. Verse 6, if they then commit apostasy, since they crucified the Son of God on their own account and hold him up to contempt. Now, how do you deal with that as a Calvinist preacher? Well, now, that's a difficult one. Um, <laughs> of course, uh, maybe our, our listeners don't know, but Calvinism teaches um, the perseverance of the saints. Now, the Catholic Church teaches that too, but there's a distinction, a very important distinction in the way that it's taught. Calvinism believes that since God is the not only the author of salvation, but he's the only one that saves, meaning that there's no cooperation on your part. What that means is that in Calvinism, if you are truly a Christian, if you've truly been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, you will persevere to the end. There's no possibility of apostasy. So There's nothing you could do to get it. So there's nothing you can do to lose it. Very, very well put, Marcus. So the question that comes up in regard to Hebrews chapter 6 is he says very explicitly here, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance once they've fallen away and tasted all these wonderful things. 
Now, this fits very well into the Catholic understanding that it is possible to have been enlightened through baptism and receive the Spirit. You can taste the heavenly gift, which might have been the Eucharist. You can become partakers of the Holy Spirit. You can taste the good things and the powers of the age to come, and you can still fall away. Now, Calvinism would say you can't do that. Now, obviously, the Calvinist is faced with a big problem, but it's obvious that there are people that have been Christian, even in Calvinist churches, and then just completely rejected the faith. How do you explain that, Mr. Calvin? Well, the answer is, the Calvinist says, well, they just looked like Christians. They just acted like Christians, but they weren't really inwardly Christians. In other words, when I dealt with this passage, I would go back to the Romans 10 passage that says, if you believe in your heart. Yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah. You know, and confess with your lips. Yeah. Well, they did. They just confessed, but they didn't really believe in their heart. Yeah, that's a good. That was the it, yeah. answer to this. Right. Well, it looked like they were Christians. Well, if you can never know what's going on, on the inside, then how could you ever have <laughs> yeah. any sense? Yeah. Of perseverance of your friend saying. being a Christian. That's exactly yeah. right. Well, and then the other the other problem with the Calvinist view. Now it's consistent with Calvinism, but I think inconsistent with the truth that's articulated by the Catholic Church, and that is they don't believe that baptism actually confer, confers forgiveness or the Spirit. It symbolizes, and it maybe covenantally will do it someday. But the, fa- the fact is, in both Lutheran and in, Calvin and in uh, Catholicism, if the baptism actually confers grace to you, then you can't, according to Calvinism, you can't lose that. But if it actually does, and then a certain person falls away, well, the Calvinist doesn't know how to explain that because you can't actually have grace conferred by to a person by God and then fall away. So the text is here is is very very um, consistent, I think, with uh, with Catholicism. I'm going to ask you, Ken, to comment on the the meaning of the Greek behind the phrase "for it is impossible to restore again yeah. to repentance." Because, no, wait a second. Nothing is impossible for God. Right, right. So, you know, how do we interpret this by the author of Hebrews? And the reason I did want to get to this, because I think it leads us into an introduction to the book of Romans, because I think Paul, part of Paul, Paul's task in writing the letter of Romans to a group of Christians he's never seen is because of people the condition that he heard about of the Christians struggling in Rome. Mm-hmm. And some of the people have drifted. Mm-hmm. And so, to me, the understanding of how to interpret the phrase, for it is impossible to restore again to repentance, which is, again, to me, the issue why mm-hmm. you know sola scriptura is a problem, because you can come up with any mm-hmm. interpretation you want. But it seemed to me, from a pastoral perspective, mm-hmm. St. Paul is a pastor of people, my experience is that it is close to impossible to bring back people who have received, have tasted, been filled. They yeah. know, they yeah. understand when they reject it, like our culture. How hard it is today to bring back Christians yeah. in a post-Christian culture. Well. There's a Protestant uh, commentator on this text I remember reading years ago, and I think he had a, a very good point here. He said that it may not be that 
that the author here is speaking from God's point of view in the sense of what's possible and not possible, but he's speaking from the psychological point of view. And that's really, I think, what you just were saying, that in the, in the vicissitudes and the, the back and forth of life, in the psychological effects of falling away and of sin, it looks virtually impossible. Now, God can do anything at any moment, but it looks virtually impossible that a person. I think this text might have been um, might have been cited by the Donatists, uh, who wanted that purified church, or in the time of Cyprian, when there were those who said, if those are fall away during apostasy during the time of persecution, they can't be let back in the church. And Cyprian, at first, so Saint Cyprian of Carthage, wanted to maintain that position. But then Stephen of Rome, the bishop and the pope, corrected uh, Cyprian, and eventually Cyprian realized the wisdom of what Stephen was saying, that, no, no, they need they need to be allowed back in if they strongly desire and if they do the proper penance to show that they're serious and so forth. Uh, but, um, but can they be renewed? Well, from a human point of view, we might say, no. No, it's impossible to renew them. And we, we do see this sometimes between, you know, sadly, and I, and I say sadly because I feel this very deeply, it really saddens me to see Catholics or, or Christians in general when they just completely abandon the faith, yeah. when they've completely abandoned God, and they really become just pagans. And maybe they become noble pagans and they don't live that badly, but they've just given up on, on the truth of who God is, you know. Maybe that's what it means. Yeah. Uh, it... It is sad, and, and again, I, I express it as a pastoral issue because that's what you're talking about, having been pastors when we've known people in our congregations yeah. who at one time you know, had a, a life-changing conversion to Jesus Christ, gave yeah. their life, changed their life, uh, corrected big mistakes in their past, moved on, maybe moved on too quickly. You, you, know, you, you think mm -hmm. about the, the parable of the seeds, the sower, you know, that um, instead of three different kinds of people, those parable of the sower kind of talk about stages of life, you know, yeah, as you go through be. different things. And when the different pressures come along and you mm. don't have the foundation, which is why ahead of time, Paul or the writer of Hebrews is saying, we got to get beyond the elementary. We got to mature. Yeah, right. We've got to grow in our faith because, you know, our faith in Christ is more than just the beginning, it involves the continuing yeah. growth in the faith. And Ken, I thought this would be a good starting point into Romans because, um, you know, the task of Paul writing, we're not sure from where, maybe Corinth, to these group of Christians in Rome whom he'd never met, though he'd mm -hmm. maybe met individuals, we think. and uh, But the task of his letter behind the letter of Romans. Yeah. And uh, so, first of all, audience, this is what Ken and I would like to do for the next, who knows how long, till the millennial, uh, next <laughs> month, uh, is to take our time to work through the book of Romans. Uh, it's a key book. It is. Um, and Ken, maybe you could express, to me, when I think of any of the New Testament books that are so crucial to the issue of bringing unity mm -hmm. to Christians and maybe the book that seems to be the most divisive mm -hmm. is the book of Romans. 
It is because, of course, Martin Luther uh, proclaimed that it was from Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 uh, that, that he supposedly got this new understanding of the gospel. This is one of our theme verses for today, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith or who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Greek. For in it, that is in this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith, or it might be from faith to faith. For it is written, he who has faith, he who through faith is righteous shall live, or the just will live by faith. This was a, this has become, sadly, a very divisive um, text because of, from this, uh, Luther proclaimed the doctrine of justification by faith alone, stressing that the Catholic Church does believe in justification by faith, but not justification by faith alone. That's why this Romans is such an important... Some people have called it the Magna Carta of the Christian life or, the, or of Christian teaching, and, uh, and it does have that flavor, this great charter of Christian uh, teaching and Christian living. Because what we're going to see in the weeks to come, Marcus, is that from chapter 1 through chapter 8, we have an exposition of the gospel, basically. Paul is telling us what the gospel is. It means justification by faith, but it also means sanctification in the Holy Spirit. He's going to share with us chapter 7 this great struggle. Then he's going to talk about the Jews from chapter 9 to chapter uh, 12, and we get into this thorny question of predestination. And then in chapter 12 on, that's where he starts talking about practical Christian living. What does it mean to live as a believer in the world every day? You know, <clears throat> the world that Paul wrote to when he wrote this, probably from Corinth, as you mentioned, uh, probably in the mid-50s, close to the time he wrote Galatians, um, he's writing to a church he's never seen. People he doesn't know, or maybe he knows some of them by name, or maybe people are visiting there. But he knows it's the metropolis. He knows it's the biggest city in the empire and the most important. And he knows that very powerful people live there. But he also probably knows that the church is very much an underground church. It, part of the struggle is understanding why he was even planning to go to Rome. Mm. Because... His motto had always been to go where the gospel had not been preached. Mm -hmm. He was going to build on somebody else's foundation. And so in this letter, we have St. Paul writing to people he'd never met, though there are some people in Rome he's probably met, and he's telling them that he's going to come. And so the question is, he kind of breaks his norm. Mm -hmm because of what he sees as a need to go to Rome, mm -hmm. to the Christians in, in Rome. And to me, that emphasizes the significance of the theme of Rome, yeah. of Romans, yeah. because he, he felt their need at that church, the need for this particular document and its overall theme, that whatever he had heard about what was going on in Rome, he, as a bishop, Mm -hmm. recognized that there needed to be this statement because of issues happening in Rome. Well, that's true. And I think also there might be an implication here 
that Paul wanted to use the church in Rome as a missionary base. Because he tells us in chapter 15, in verses 20, it's actually in verse 24, but what he's saying here, this is the reason why, verse 22, this is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room to work in these regions, that is, you know, in Achaia, in Greece, um, and since I've longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be sped on my journey by you there. Now, that's interesting. I, w- I hope to be sped on my journey by you. In other words, the Roman church could become his base of missions in the West. So far, he's ministered only in the Greek-speaking East. Now, there are Greek speakers in the West, too, but Rome was kind of the dividing point. And the people in the western part of the Roman Empire spoke Latin. The people in the eastern part of the Roman Empire spoke Greek. So he's got a missionary purpose, but maybe that's also why he wants them to know very clearly his understanding of the gospel. This is what the gospel is, so that we can be on the same page. We can be united in our understanding of the gospel. Now, one thing we should say, and this is, comes up in chapter 16, too, when he talks in, I forgot exactly which verse it is, but he talks about the fact that I want you to greet so-and-so and so-and-so and the church that meets in their house. Yes. Um, this is in chapter 16. Yeah, he mentions this in chapter 16, verse 5. He's talking, greet Priscilla and Aquila, whom we know from the book of Acts, mm-hmm. uh, were friends, and they came from Alexandria. And he says, they've risked their necks for my life, to save my life. And I say this, and also I want you to agree, verse 5, the church that is in their house. So the churches in Rome at this point in history are very much underground. Notice, the church in their house may imply, and I think it probably did, there were probably a number of churches spread around the great metropolis of Rome, which means that the church at Rome was not just a one individual congregation. It was a diocese, you see. Yeah, and that gets us to the idea that church had a bigger meaning exactly. than a basilica or a place, right, right. but that it is this community, that's the right. fellowship of the Trinity. I mean, that's really the book we'll look at in a little bit. Let's take a break, Ken. We'll come back and pick up on that right after the break. You're listening to Deep in Scripture with Martin Scrodi and Kenneth Howell, and you're hearing us from the Coming Home Network International. See you in a bit. Hello, I'm Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, and I'd like to tell you about my newest book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? A growing number of Christians today believe that all that is necessary for salvation is an individual's faith in Jesus. Churches everywhere proclaim this Jesus and me theology based upon a simple interpretation of John 3.16. They diminish the need for rituals, sacraments, creeds, or even membership in any particular church. But is this true? In this book, I examine how salvation has always come by being a faithful individual in the family of God, the church. For information, please go to chresources.com or call 740-450-1175. Thank you. 
next time on The Journey Home. Join Marcus as he welcomes former evangelical Christian Scott Block. He'll share his testimony about his journey home to the Catholic Church. That's on the next Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodin and Ken Howell. And uh, today we're just beginning our study of Romans with an overview. And, and so we invite you to please join us in the weeks ahead. Uh, little by little, we're going to chip our way through this wonderful book. And just a couple suggestions of things to, uh, to help in that. Um, I, I happened to be uh, flat on my back for a couple weeks with a, a foot infection. Uh, and it wouldn't, wouldn't you know it, it came right in the middle of berry season, so I missed all my berries that I usually pick every year. But uh, um, on uh, the feast of St. Peter and Paul, EWTN rebroadcast a television movie called St. Peter, uh, starring um, oh, Omar, Sharif. Omar Sharif as yeah. Peter. And... I found the movie fascinating. Uh, you know, there'll be critics of the movie, this and that. Yeah. Uh, but I thought, the reason I recommend the movie, and you can buy the, the, the DVD of the movie through EWTN. The reason I highly recommend it is because I felt they did an extremely powerful job of visually portraying what life was like for Christians in these home churches in Rome. Because here we are, two thousand years later, and you know we're used to getting, you know, uh, published books. We're going to church. There's a church in every corner. Even if we are losing our religious freedoms today in this country, yet still we can get in a car and go to church, and really no big problem. Uh, today, our Christian faith is so much a part of our lives; we take it for granted all the time. But understanding that these first century Christians to whom Paul was writing were mostly servants, mm -hmm. the lower level of society, living in very sparse, simplistic homes. Mm -hmm. And that they didn't have buildings yet for churches, as Ken said before the break, they met in their homes. And uh, first of all, this movie I highly recommend because it, it gives that uh, visual picture to help you place the entire book of Acts in the context. Second thing I'd like to recommend is there's a, a commentary on Romans published by Ignatius Press, the Ignatius Catholic Study Bible. And they have a version of the letter of St. Paul to the Romans uh, by Scott Hahn, co-author Curtis Mitch. You can purchase that book through Ignatius.com. 
It's a small little booklet, but I highly recommend it as a very trustworthy commentary to read along if you'd like to join us or on your own to study the book of Romans. Yeah, you know, Marcus, when you're talking about um, the the movie, and I've got to see it myself after hearing your description, um, it reminded me of one of my favorite places in the city of Rome, uh, the Church of uh, San or uh, Holy uh, Saint Clement, Clement, Clemente, which is very close to the uh, to the Colosseum and to the Arch of uh, Constantine in the um, near the Spanish. Uh, I think it's near the Spanish sector of the city. But anyway, the point is this: if in that church there's like three levels, one's a 12th century church the one that you walk into when you walk off the street. There's a 4th century church beneath that. And then down below, there is a 1st century, what was probably a building. You can hear the water running through it. There's a room where there used to be adherence to the religion of Mithraeus, Mithraism, and they were there worshiping as well. Probably there were Christians worshiping in that church from the very, very 1st wow. century. We know that Clement was was the bishop of Rome during the late 90s if you if and there's no way to convey this with words but if you were to go down into those churches one of the things that you get the impression of that you realize is what we would call today very primitive conditions the way that they had to worship and not only that they had to escape being seen doing this because they were they were being threatened in their faith, not only by Nero, who was undoubtedly the, the worst of all the lunatics, but, but the suspicion of their neighbors. What is this new religion? We all, we've seen Jews before, but what's this thing, you know? This is kind of Jewish, but it's not really Jewish, and they didn't know what to do. So for these Christians living in Rome, um, they, they had their challenges in front of them, living in a very pagan society. Well, and as you said, Rome is on the edge between the Greek culture, the Greek history, That's the right. Greek language, yeah. and then the Latin world and yeah. all of their... And that's in some ways, that's why I've always been uh, so moved by the power of St. Clement's letter Yeah, uh, uh, in that... He's writing from Rome to Corinth. Mm. He's writing from the Latin world with yeah. authority yeah. to the church in Corinth in the Greek world, which yeah, yeah. just talked about the power, uh, the authority of of uh, the bishop of Rome at, at the time. And notice if he's if Paul is writing in line with what you just said, notice that Paul writing in the early fifties or the mid fifties. He identifies himself in this letter as a called apostle. So his authority is recognized, he expects it to be recognized anyway, by the Roman church, even though he's never been there, because he's called as apostle of Jesus Christ. Put that into perspective. Again, we, if we look at the timeline of Paul, and uh, I haven't prepared for us to do this on the program, but think about the timeline of Paul. When we think think Paul was knocked off his horse. Yeah. Okay. So we have the we have the death and resurrection of Jesus about 30 AD. 
Mm. Right? I mean, a 33 maybe. 33. So we have it there, it is in the early 30s. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Depending on, on, on how you date it. How yeah. you date things. Yeah, yeah. But still within a couple yeah. years. Sure. Then we have the, uh, the conversion of Paul. Mm-hmm. But we also know, so that's probably in the, within a year or two of the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Mm-hmm. Time seemed to go longer in those days than, you know, <laughs> one thing happens in a year in those days. For us, it's every five minutes. But yeah. uh, So if we, if we put the conversion of Paul sometime in the late, mid to late 30s, mm-hmm. we also know that, uh, you know, he, had, he started out, he got some approval, but he went to Tarsus for 10 plus years, mm-hmm. right? That's right. He went away before he really began he his say, yeah. major ministries. He he went into hiding, into seclusion. That's right. He didn't dig the Ignatius exercises for 10 years. <laughs> uh, and then is brought back by Barnabas to Rome. So now we're talking the late 40s. Yeah, yeah. And he comes to Jerusalem, excuse me, and receives the affirmation of Cephas, Peter, and and the other mm-hmm. James and, and John. Yeah. Was it John there? The I apostles. Know, Cephas, James. I can't remember if it was John. Uh, but the point is, there's where he gets his affirmation of of his apostleship. Mm-hmm. It's not until then. So it's the late forties, mm-hmm. going by the Book of Acts, that Paul receives that. Here already, all the way over in Rome, mm-hmm. he's able to to write to these Christians whom he's never met with the authority of apostle. And most scholars think that this was written during his third missionary journey. So uh, we're talking. So he's been out in he's been out in Asia Minor. Remember the first journey went up into Pamphylia and Iconium and all of that, and then his second journey. Now he's on his third journey. And this is the journey where, as he says in chapter 15, he's intending to come to Rome. And here's the beauty of that. In God's providence, God did not allow him to go to Rome on his own volition. Because he gets arrested, he's taken to Jerusalem, and then he has to go to Rome under guard. Lock and, and the key. assumption is he doesn't make it to Spain, though I think there's some yeah. speculation on whether he was allowed to before he was beheaded. Well, he certainly makes it to Rome because at right. the end of the book of Acts, we have him under house arrest. And then I think we have the witness of Second Timothy, which means that, yes, he stayed in Rome. He was under house arrest. Maybe he was able to do some things, but and eventually he was tried, tried, maybe tried again and was uh, was beheaded. They're in Rome during the time of Nero. There's no evidence in Romans where this church came from. We know exactly. We we know Peter and Paul ended up there, but they're there. And Ken, I'm going to read uh, a a, a statement written by Paul's best friend, Luke. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'd like your thoughts on the reflection of this, not only for Rome, but in terms of all of the strategy of Paul's missionary work for in Acts 2, the, uh, the the folk who had heard the Pentecostal preaching said, are not all these who are speaking Galileans, and how is it that they, we hear each of us in our own native language, Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, 
Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Mm -hmm. Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the point is, there is the seeds. Is this not the evidence from St. Luke, the seeds of all those churches that were spread out around the Mediterranean? That's the the power of Pentecost, Hmm. is that God used the the words of St. Peter, they were heard in the languages of all these visitors, and when the vis- and then by grace they were changed, because remember they turned to Peter and said, now what we must do, and yeah, be Peter, saved, yeah. Peter says, be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit, and mm-hmm. then they return home, and here are the seeds for all these churches, and there we see references to visitors from Rome. Well, there's, there's, the, there's Rome, and notice the scope of this, from the world as they viewed it. So to go to Rome would be to go to the very center of the empire. They knew that wasn't, I mean, obviously Spain is beyond Rome to the west, um, but he's, talk, he's talking about the gospel going as fully as possible to the west. And we know, by the way, that by the early second century, the gospel had reached into Britannia in France and across the English Channel to the island of Britain. So you have you have the gospel way up there, but notice according to the list that you just read out of Acts chapter 2, notice where also it goes. He goes to Parthia, Media, the enemy. That's where we call Iran and Iraq today, basically. So it's huge. And down into what? Uh, down into... Um, there's Pontus, there's Cappadocia, that's Asia Minor, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt... It says, mm-hmm. and parts of Libya and Cyrene, that's in Africa. That's down on the uh, southern coast of the Mediterranean. And into Arabia, into Crete. And so the, this, is the, this is the seed of the gospel that's going east and west. God if, was planting seeds yes, so that when Paul was sent forth by Jesus after his conversion to go around the Mediterranean, he would have a welcome yeah. room for him to stay, people to hear him, to invite friends, so that he was able to preach the gospel. There's a beautiful balance here, too, between what we might call the charismatic move of the Spirit, and I don't mean speaking in tongues, but the unusual move of the Spirit, and yet the need for the recognizing that the Spirit acts through the structures of the church. Here's all these people going out. Let's say they're converted. That seems reasonable from the assumption why Luke would write it that way in Acts 2. They go out and they spread the gospel of Jesus Christ east and west. And now, then come the apostles, like Thomas going down to southern India. The gospel may have preceded Thomas to southern India, but by the mid, maybe the 60s, Thomas is down in southern India, and he's established the church, which is why the the Christians of southern India today call themselves the St. Thomas Christians. So you see the balance. God is not limited to the structures of the church, but nevertheless, once the church is established, they must recognize those official structures that are given through apostolic succession. 
one thing I wanted to run by you um, in Second Peter, chapter three, mm-hmm. the very end of it, Peter writes, um, "Count the forbearance of our Lord as salvation." So also our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, speaking of this as he does in all his letters, there are some things in them hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. Yeah, I find that verse fascinating to think about as we jump into the study of Romans in this sense. Peter is in Rome. Mm-hmm. We don't know where he was when he wrote these letters or even who he's writing to uh, when he's writing these but we know uh, that when Peter wrote or at least dictated these letters to an amanuensis that by this time the people he's writing to had received letters from Paul he says yeah yeah and that they were already recognizing the fact that Paul's letters were being so appreciated by the Christians that they were making copies of them, mm-hmm. must have, and distributing them so that not the individuals would have copies, but that they were being read in the liturgies when they would gather, mm-hmm. either in small homes or in bigger homes. That's the witness of the early church. Well, and what it, what it shows, I think, is I think it's it's a reasonable hypothesis that Peter is writing both First and Second Peter from Rome. I'll give you an example. In chapter, in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 13, here's the words he uses. The church that is in Babylon, the elect church that's in Babylon, and mark my son, greet you. And the you, of course, there is plural, y'all. <laughs> and uh, what he's saying is the church that's in Babylon, Babylon is a symbol of, of any pagan nation. And so what's this place in Rome? Well, it's still very much a pagan city. So the church that's not in Rome, but it's in Babylon, and maybe he had to do that to hide his from the wider, in case the letter was intercepted. Um, So he's saying, but here we are in Rome, and he's writing, tells us at the beginning of 1 Peter, to the people in Cappadocia, Asia Minor, all of those churches. What is he telling them? People are recognizing Paul's writings as on the equivalent of sacred scripture, which would mean the Old Testament, of course. So, and he calls him his beloved brother. So by this time, probably late in Peter's life, maybe in Paul's life, here we have an affirmation of the apostles to one of one another. That movie that I recommended, one of the things I think they did a, a wonderful job bringing to the, the surface is, if you think about it, Wherever the Christian faith spread, yeah. not only, of course, is the message of Jesus Christ being the center of that, but so is Peter yeah, yeah, and the apostles. Yeah, and yeah. so that no matter where it goes, if Peter shows up, everybody is there. Because the authority of who he is yeah. as one of the chosen and the the rock upon which the church is built. Uh, the first, he preached the first sermon, you know, everything, yeah. Peter was the first. So his word not only confirmed Paul's authority way back in Jerusalem when, when Paul left 
left Tarsus. But here, as you pointed out in First Peter, we see Paul and his uh, Peter in his letter affirming the authority of Paul in his writings as it's being recognized. And, mm. you know, Paul is in a unique position when he does show up in Rome because he is a Roman citizen. Peter wasn't. That's right. You know, Peter's a, 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 a foreigner in yeah. Rome yeah, with right. the Christians there. But as you said, when Paul is writing this letter, already people are recognizing his authority. It's affirmed by Peter in Peter's letters, and it's a part of the tradition of the church as it's spreading out. No matter where the gospel goes, you're hearing the story of Peter and of Paul. Well, you know, you 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 were fond in the past of speaking of those verses you never saw. And I remember our dearly beloved uh, brother and father in the faith, uh, Father Ray Ryland, recently departed for heaven. Um, He pointed out something that struck me one time, a verse I never had seen. (laughs) But it came up in Mass today, this morning. It's in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 2. It says, when it, it's, it says, these are the names of the 12 apostles. Now notice the language. Not disciples. These are the names of the 12 apostles. And then it says what? First. It gives you the word first. There's Simon, who was called Peter. And then it goes on and lists them. But it notes, and in all of the lists, this is what Father Ryland had shown to me. In all of the lists of the apostles in the in the books in the uh, Gospels, Peter's always listed first. Is that significant? Well, maybe not if we didn't have other reasons. But we do have other reasons from Acts and from those texts in First Peter, where we see that he's writing authoritatively from one church to the other, much like Clement did later. And what he's saying is, treat Paul as an authoritative apostle, too. It's one apostle, the chief apostle, affirming the other apostle in this instance. So what we have here is the unity and collegiality of the apostolic band. Yeah, something else just struck me fun, Kenny, Ken, I've never thought of. All the Gospels, we assume, were written after a good portion of the letters the of St. Paul. Yeah, that's what most people think, yeah. I mean, I'm one that believes that Matthew was written originally in Hebrew way back when, and then it was mm-hmm. translated later into Greek, And then, but, but besides the fact. But it's interesting that all four Gospels emphasize the authority of the apostles as they're telling the stories. Mm-hmm. They never mentioned Paul. Mm-hmm. Paul wasn't a part of, of the story yet until mm-hmm. we get the book of Acts. But you see that uh, even with the influence that Paul has at that time, mm-hmm. by the 50s and into the 60s, the power of Paul in all yeah. these places, that the gospel story wasn't tweaked a little bit to somehow slip Paul in there early. No, mm-hmm. it was Peter. It yeah. was Peter that remained the authority throughout yeah. the gospels. And then in Acts, Luke tells the rest of the story on how Paul became an apostle. Well, you know, there's a beautiful um, there's a beautiful synergy here. I think one is that it's clear that Paul was the great rabbi. He was trained in the Jewish scriptures. He must have memorized extensively parts of the Old Testament, 
And when he writes, he writes in, a, in, the, in the educated language of the day. And Peter's what? The fisherman. But Peter's gift was, was the gift of leadership. And Paul's was the gift of the intellect, you might say. But notice that by the time Peter gets to write his two letters toward the end of the New Testament period, toward maybe the early 60s before he's martyred in Rome, what is he doing? He has a rich theology and a theological understanding that partly he must have gotten from Paul. So you see, there's a beautiful synergy where the apostles are working together to lead and to guide the church. And that's what gave the Church of Rome its foundation. Because as the Church in Rome today still acknowledges, who are the founders of the Church of Rome? Is there one or two? There's two. Peter and Paul. They're both crucial. You know, uh, when we begin this book, and we'll just take a few moments. We only have a couple minutes left. But it seems to me, Ken, that What's unique about the beginning of Romans is he begins with just a simple phrase. In all of his letters, he mentions called to be an apostle. Yeah. It's in every letter. Yeah. But there's only a couple of letters where he adds the phrase, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. It's in Philippians when Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, mm. and then it's in the beginning, excuse me, of Titus. Uh, the only times... And it seems to me that maybe given his audience, given who he's writing to, that he recognizes this is the way he's got to begin. Well, I think that's that's very insightful. But I, and I think it also we can look at it as a model. He's saying, I want, to, I want you to follow my example. In other words, you're facing great difficulties here by being in the great metropolis where there's enormous pressure and power against you what should you what posture should you assume you should assume the posture of servant you know marcus this letter written in the 50s is almost a harbinger of what's going to happen in july of 64 a.d when rome burns 10 of its 14 quarters are burned and nero blames it on the christians and in that sense the witness of the christians that small group uh, encouraged by Paul and Peter, becomes such a powerful threat. That's right. Exactly. That Nero blames them so that he can remodel the city, but yeah. he, he blames them for this. Ken, thanks for joining me in the studio today. Great to be here. And again, the rest of you, we're going to start then next week for weeks into the into the millennia, uh, the study of Rome. Please join us for this, uh, and let's do it together in prayer. God bless you. See you next week.